Well, I invite you to open up the scriptures to Psalm 62. The 62nd Psalm, we began this Psalm last week and worked our way through half of it, which was not my intention last week, but that's what happened in the Lord's providence. And so we'll finish the Psalm this evening. Psalm 62. Let's read the entire Psalm together, fixing it in our minds trying to recall some of the things that we learned a week ago from the first six or seven verses. Let's read together Psalm 62. You follow along as I read. Psalm 62, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Truly, my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity. And men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. For thou renderest to every man according to his work. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's inerrant word. This is a psalm that speaks of the believer's exclusive rest in God. And we thought about this psalm under the theme of resting in God alone last Sunday evening. And what we observed about the psalm is that the first two verses, David's testifying to us of the ideal posture of spirit, of soul, that a believer can have before the Lord. Literally, it reads, only my soul is silent before God. And we all long for more of that ideal. 
And we long for that posture of spirit to be more consistently our own posture. To be able to say, like the hymn we just sang, it is well with our souls. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, and peace like a river attends our way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, we want to be able to say, because we want to give God glory with our living and show that he's strong and reliable and trustworthy. We want to be more consistent in resting in him, in being silent before him, in waiting upon God. And we talked about how this was the actual posture of soul of this man. There was a day, just as real as this day, when David could sit down and pen those words. And they were true of the state of his heart at that time. And it wasn't that he was living some ideal circumstance. We know enough of David's life to know better than that. He was constantly threatened. And that peace and that rest in God, that silence before the Lord, that posture before God of stillness was constantly threatened. And he speaks about the threat in verses 3 and 4. And we summed up all of verses 3 and 4 by just talking about the world. The world, which is that system of people which are antagonistic against the children of God which are set against them with conspiratorial lies and deceit. And so um, the world is the chief threat of the peace of the child of God. But when assaulted by the world, David could testify that his soul was still upon God alone. And so we said, well, how in the world is this attainable? It just sounds like some sort of otherworldly experience. And so we said, this is what the psalm is about. This psalm, the unique contribution of this psalm in Scripture is to teach us, to model for us, to counsel us how to quiet down our souls, how to stop the soul panic when we feel pressured threatened, boxed in, in a tight spot in this present evil age. This psalm is so helpful because it offers an ideal. It acknowledges that that ideal is threatened, and then it counsels us what to do in the meantime, while it's threatened. And the counsel we saw takes two forms. The counsel begins in verse number five and extends all the way down to the end of the psalm. This is how to quiet your soul, quiet your noisy soul. It takes two forms. In the first three verses, verses five and six and seven, we have a window into the way that David deals with his own soul. It's as if he's on his knees, in his prayer closet, and we are privy to his own searching of heart, to his own to his own speech to himself and to God. And we see in verse number five, he addresses his soul. 
And so we said, what were the stabilizing approaches that this man took with his soul when he felt threatened by the world, when he felt his peace and his rest being taken away from him, when he felt his heart being drawn after some idol, some other thing? The approach that he took was, first of all, to address his soul, to command his soul, in fact, to give his soul commands from the word of God. That's what he does in verse 5. My soul, wait. That's a command, an imperative. Wait, thou only upon God. And so we talked about the need that we have to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. And to have plenty of scriptural commands at our disposal that we can marshal in a moment of soul panic to bring them to bear on our soul and to tell our soul how it ought to respond. We can't just be passively carried along by our circumstances and by our emotions. We have to take action with our souls and tell them how to respond. Soul, wait only on God. The second thing he does was keyed by that word for in the middle of verse 5, or the word because. And so we talked about what are you doing when you say a command and then you say the next phrase beginning with a because. Well, you're reasoning with the other person. And so that's what he does next. He begins to reason with his soul. He doesn't just give it the bare command to do something. He he also reasons with it, tells it why it ought to rest in God. And the reasons are all from who God is and what God has said And therefore, how God will act in this circumstance. And so the reasoning is, my expectation or my hope is from him. He only is my rock. And he's my salvation. And he is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. He reminds himself of fundamental truths that he knows about God. And we made the point last week that we so often think that what we need is something new. Some new insight, some new secret knowledge, some formula, some three steps. And the Christian bookstores are full of three steps to this and five steps to that and everybody having their new approach. And usually what we need is not something new. What we need is something old. It's something that we've known for all of our lives as Christians. What we need in the moment of soul panic are things that we've known since we were three or four years old. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That kind of truth, that's that's the stabilizing truth that we have to bring our souls back to when our rest in God, when our stillness, when that ideal posture of soul that's resting and trusting in God is, is threatened and we're in a soul panic from whatever circumstance that this fallen world brings our way. 
in God's providence. So the stabilizing approaches we saw last week were to command your soul with God's commands and then the reason with your soul from what you know to be true about God. But then we said at the end, this only works if you can, with confidence, use the word my. You have to be able to use the word my or it doesn't work. And you see David using the word my all the way through those three verses. How many times has he used the word my? might want to even underline them or circle them in your Bibles. They stand out to you next time you read this psalm. How many, every time he talks about God, he's not just a God or the God. He's my God. He's mine. And if our souls cannot with confidence say that, if we shrink back from saying my then we will derive very little comfort from the attributes and the promises of God. We have to be able to say, my, we're to draw near with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Hebrews chapter 10 says. And so he is showing us how to deal with our souls with those two, with those two approaches. Now in verse number 8. This is kind of where we left off last week. He's going to get up from his knees and he's going to turn and he's going to address us with counsel. He's going to tell us what we ought to specifically do when our soul posture is threatened. And we see an interesting application right away here when we observe that. We don't have to come to the point where we have no needs ourselves before we can give counsel to other people. Here we have a man who knows what it is to struggle against the threats of this world and who has the need to settle his spirit down and to tell it how to act and what to think and to reason with his soul about God. This is a man who knows the need of going to work on his own spirit, and then the man offers us counsel. And we should not balk at the opportunity to give other people counsel because we know ourselves to be struggling with the same thing. We can never come to the point where we think that there are two classes of Christians, the ones who have arrived and that give the help and the ones who haven't arrived and who need the help. It is never going to be the case in this fallen world. Believers are all in the same boat. They're all just weak children of God, children who cannot see the way forward, children who cannot defend themselves, children who need to be provided for and to be protected, who need wisdom, who need grace at every turn. No one has arrived. And so let's settle that right now and not be reluctant because we struggle too. Let's not be reluctant to come alongside someone else and to encourage them in the Lord. Often Satan will do that to us. We have an opportunity to minister 
And then Satan will bring to our minds our own struggles and our own deficiencies and will shrink back from being a help to someone else because we don't want to be a hypocrite. Here's David. He hasn't arrived. He knows the daily need to go to work on his spirit, and yet he's still willing to minister to us and to turn around and to give us counsel. And so verse 8 begins his counsel to us, and so we're just going to kind of walk through these last five verses. We'll touch on some things more, more than others, probably. But let's just walk right through these, these verses in order, and phrase by phrase. In verse number 8, we have a positive and a negative command. right? So well, verse number 8 and 9 work together as a positive and negative. So positive 8, what should you trust in? And then verses 9 and 10, what should you not trust in? And you see how those two work together. So 8 and then 9 and 10 work together as opposites. So you have a positive exhortation followed by a negative exhortation. And so the first thing he tells us, verse 8, is trust in him at all times. So what is the fundamental position, the fundamental state that people need to obtain in the midst of this wicked, fallen world and all of its instability? The fundamental thing to obtain is found in one word. It's trust. Trust. Trust in him at all times. And so I want to begin by raising the question of what that means. Do we know what it means? Trust in him at all times. We will never be hoped but we will never be helped by generalities, by vagueness as we look at scripture. What we need is specificity. What we need is specifics. That is what helps us and that grows us. And we're tempted when we come to a phrase like that, trust in him at all times. That sound, that's just vague generalities. That's just Bible language. You know, what specifically is being communicated here? That word trust is not the normal word for faith. It's not the normal word for faith. This is a word that has more to do with your feeling than your thinking. It means to feel confident, to feel secure. It's a different word than the normal word for trust. Um, it's, it's a word that has more to do with your emotional state of feeling confidence. It's not the word for believing or accepting something to be true rather than false. You could translate it, feel confident, be confident in the Lord, hope in the Lord, derive your security from the Lord, your confidence from the Lord. And I think a good way to understand this is to recognize that whenever the scripture warns us about trusting money, it always uses that word. This is the Hebrew word all through the Old Testament whenever you have a warning to not trust in riches. When we're trusting in riches, what are we doing? 
Well, we're not acknowledging the existence of money. Right? That's not what trusting riches means. It doesn't mean I believe that I have wealth as opposed to I do not believe that I have wealth. That's not what trusting money is. When we trust riches, what we're doing is we're getting from wealth what we ought to be getting from God. Hope, security, confidence about the future. To trust wealth is to rely on wealth. It's to feel confident because of my bank account. And so that's why I say this word has more to do with feeling than thinking. This is the word used in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. So be confident in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on him. Don't lean on your own understanding. And so that's the fundamental mood that everyone here needs to be constantly counseled toward. More confidence in God. More confidence in God. More security in his promises. And the passage urges us to have this confidence in God at all times. At all times. And when he says at all times, he's not just talking about every hour of the day and every day of the week and every week of the year and every year of the decade. And that's not what he's speaking of specifically. What he means is in all circumstances, in all circumstances, in all the events of life, in every alteration, in every change, particularly when we are in those occasions when we feel threatened, be confident in him. In all times, in all the alterations and changes of life, be confident in him. And we would all like to be confident in the Lord like that. But we don't have a button to push. We can't just turn off the spigot of our anxiety. How do we make this happen? How do we grow in our confidence in the Lord? That's that's the next question I have. If I come to verse 8 and I really understand what he's telling me to do, be confident in him at all times. Well, you make it sound so easy, David. How do you do that? Tell me. Well, that's exactly how the verse proceeds. How do you do it? You people, pour out your heart before him. The answer to the how question is the second line. So give me one word. What would be one word that summarizes that second line? How do we grow in confidence in the Lord? The one word answer would be prayer. Prayer. We want to experience God as a refuge. And we want to be confident in him. We want to feel secure in him. We want to rise up in great security amid all the threats and perils of a fallen world. How do we do that? Answer, pray. 
I wonder if that counsel disappoints us. We were hoping for some kind of secret. We were hoping for some sort of special insight. But that just seems so commonplace. Pray. It's so ordinary. So ordinary. We thought we would get some kind of hidden passageway into the fortification of sensing his presence at all times. But pray. I've known about prayer all my life. I've known that that's the secret all of my life. This is what God's word says. Pray. Pour out your heart before him. Be confident in the Lord and pray. It's the open secret for how to burrow into God as your rock, as your refuge. Can you think of some scriptural examples of this? Can you think of examples in the word of God of people that felt threatened and they poured out their heart before the Lord. They took the bucket of their soul and turned it upside down before God. Can you think of examples? How about Hannah praying for a son at Shiloh? Arriving at the tabernacle with a burden, leaving with joy. How about Job? Scratching himself on his ash heap, pouring out his heart before the Lord. How about Jeremiah? And those times he felt betrayed by God and honestly just let it all out, just poured it all out before the Lord. Hezekiah, taking that terrible letter from Sennacherib and taking it to the temple and spreading it out before the Lord and pouring out his heart over the needs of Jerusalem, the people of God. Or Paul, beseeching the Lord three times that he would take away that thorn in the flesh, pouring out his heart before the Lord or preeminently our Lord Jesus in Gethsemane. Oh, how he poured out his soul unto the Lord. He said himself that he was in great distress. And we know that he sweat great drops of blood in that pouring out of heart before the Lord. Those were all real, live situations. They weren't myths. They were real men and women who prayed, who got hold of the bucket of their soul and turned it upside down before God. And they found the Lord God to be their refuge. They poured out their heart in earnestness, in bitterness of soul, in honesty before God. They poured out their soul before the Lord and each of them left the throne of grace the way that the writer of Samuel puts it of Hannah, no more sad. I think Psalm 142 is an example of this. Just turn over there quickly. Psalm 142. Let's read the first couple verses there. Here's an example of pouring out your heart before the Lord. In fact, the same word is used. David was in a tight spot in Psalm 142. He was in the cave 
which is probably that time when he was being chased by Saul. He's hiding in the back of the cave, and lo and behold, Saul walks in. That was a tight spot. And so he cried unto the Lord with his voice, with my voice unto the Lord that I make supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. That's what it is to pour out your heart before the Lord, to show before him his trouble. And when we do that, the Lord is faithful. He's faithful to answer. Not necessarily in changing the circumstances, but he is faithful in settling our inner man about it. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And the overarching reason in verse number 8 that we can pour out our soul to God is that he is a refuge for us. The great two words there deserve to be underlined. He's a refuge for us. He's on our side. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? What more can we ask? He's a sympathetic high priest who's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's a refuge for us. So that's the beginning of David's counsel. He looks at us and he says, Be confident in the Lord in every change of life. How do I do that, David? Okay, well, you're going to do that by pouring out your heart in honesty before the Lord, trusting him as a refuge for you. And verse 8 ought to conclude the psalm. It really ought to. If it weren't for our rebellious, deceitful hearts, Verse 8 should be the end of the psalm. The Selah should end it. Move on to Psalm 63. But for some reason, we are very reticent to do verse 8. Have you found that to be the case in your own experience? Why is it? Why is it that those simple things in verse number 8 we are so reluctant to do? We're hesitant. To follow that counsel. It's because our hearts are toxic with unbelief. And what we typically do when we find ourselves in a tight spot, what we typically do when our peace is threatened by some circumstance is rather than running straight to our refuge and putting our confidence in the Lord and pouring out our heart before him, what we end up doing is running out and looking at all of our other options. Isn't that what we do? We look for our other options. Is there another way out? We start considering the alternatives. We are plagued with an innate skepticism of God. And we're so double-minded. 
on the one hand, we're thinking about how good it would be to really pour out our heart before the Lord. How long has it been since I've drawn near to him like that? In absolute honesty. And poured out my heart before him. Oh, how good it would be to do that. And on the other hand, something rises up within us and says, yes, but that will cost you. What if you go to God about this trial and he asks you to do something difficult? What if he asks you to apologize to someone? And so we start considering the alternatives and these other options freeze us in indecision. So the psalm has to take an abrupt turn in verse number 9. Here he's been saying these glorious things. God is my salvation. He's my strength. He's my refuge. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your hearts before him. Surely men of low degree are vanity. Oh, talk about throwing a bucket of cold water on things. Why does he have to do that? Because that is our tendency to start looking at the alternatives. So what he does in verses 9 and 10 is he's going to march right down through our three most common alternatives. And he's going to show us they're not worth trusting in. Don't even think about looking to these options. These are God's competitors, and they are unworthy competitors. So don't put your trust there. He's going to shut off all doors of escape in verses 9 and 10. These are the competitors to our confidence in verses 9 and 10. And so what's he begin with? Verse 9, the alternative of other people. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. Let's examine our hearts about this. Are we ever tempted to abandon God as our confidence in favor of other people? We do it in a lot of ways. Some Christians get too caught up in politics. And promising candidates or the ideas of political pundits become a refuge for them and become their hope. Others trust in a certain relationship to give them peace and security that only God can come through on. For young people, sometimes it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. For parents, it's often their children. The thought of not seeing their grown children or their grandchildren is too much to ask. But the typical way that our hearts seek refuge in other people is by overvaluing what other people think of us. That's normally what this is going to look like. We love the praise and applause of other people. And we look to their affirmation as our security and as our joy and as our hope. It feels so safe to be liked. And it seems, it feels so vulnerable to be not liked and to be unappreciated or to be ridiculed. 
And this is normally the way that we put our confidence in other people. We care more about what other people think of us than what God thinks of us. And so what does David say about other people? Surely men of low degree are vanity. That word vanity is just the word breath. And men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. You put all of the opinions of other people, the accumulated praise of the entire world on a balance. And it's lighter than air. So you put it, you have a balance here. You get the picture in your mind. You have a balance here. And on one side, you put all people. And rather than the balance going down under the weight, it goes up under their weight because they're all lighter than air. So the other basket has air in it. It has nothing in it. And that's heavier. They're lighter than air. Get the picture? They're air. In fact, they're lighter than air when you lay in a balance. Now put God on this side and you see the contrast. And so, other people, not worthy of our confidence, don't look to them in a moment of soul panic. That is given to us to help us overcome that temptation we have. What's the next temptation in verse number 10? Trust not in oppression. Become not vain in robbery. Oppression is putting pressure on people who are disadvantaged. It's taking advantage of the weak. It's finding loopholes and working the system. Robbery is a violent seizing of something. It's, that word's normally translated as spoil, as in spoils of war, something ripped away with force. And together the words communicate that we will often be tempted to put confidence in ourselves and in our own ability to find and escape and to wiggle our way out of a jam. And isn't that normally what we do too? Rather than putting our confidence in God in this circumstance, we put our confidence in ourselves and our own ability to work the system and to wiggle our way out. I've been around the block a few times. I can get myself out of this. And if I have to do so by bending the truth a little bit, that's okay. I'll be out of the jam. Think of a situation like Abraham and Hagar. Here's Abraham in a tight spot. God has promised him a son. He begins to think after 15 years of waiting. The same God who promised me a son gave me a barren wife. He obviously expects me to do something about this. And so he begins to lean on his own understanding. And you get Hagar. And you get Ishmael. And you have someone who's trusting in their own ability rather than putting their confidence wholly in the Lord. When we're trusting, when we're putting our confidence in our own ability to sin, we're trusting a lie. It can never come through in its promises. Sin never brings security. It's not a rock, it's quicksand. Sin always is enslaving. It never gives hope, never gives security. So beware of that competitor, the competitor of trusting ourselves and our own ability to work the system and to sin and get out of it. And then the third one is the big one. 
other people, the alternative of other people, the alternative of our own skill, and then the alternative of riches, human resources. We know this one really well. If I only had an extra 500 bucks a month, boy, would life be different. And the Bible's full of warnings not to put our confidence in wealth. Jesus said, take care and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesseth. Paul told Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world that be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, which giveth us richly all things to enjoy. The writer of Hebrews said, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Jesus taught the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the progress of the word when it's sown in our lives. He said it's easier to go for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go and to enter into heaven. There's a subtle danger with wealth. Increased riches give the same sense of security that God ought to be giving us. That's the subtle danger with wealth. The feeling of having plenty of money in the bank, it mimics the feeling that God gives to his own people. It's, there's that good feeling of having all of our needs met and satisfied. There's that warm security when I think about the future and all of its possibilities. There's the immediate pleasure. There's that euphoria when somebody's ship comes in. And that's why the psalmist is always warning us not to put our trust in uncertain riches. If riches increased, set not your heart upon them. It's something that we all have to be aware of. We cannot put our confidence in riches or retirement accounts or bills paid or new cars or estates to which we've been named an heir or the potential for a raise. We can't daydream about coming into wealth. We have to deal with that the same way we deal with any sort of thought problem. Confess it to the Lord and repent of it and put off and put on. We can't be putting our trust, our confidence in human resources. So beware of putting your confidence in other people. Beware of putting your confidence in your ability to sin your way out of a jam. And beware of putting your confidence in human resources. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. We begin our service with riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, thou and always. If we're truly going to rest in the Lord as our refuge, we're going to have to be serious about dealing with his competitors and not allowing our hearts to go after them. And then we come to verses 11 and 12, where we have the clinching reasons to rest in God alone. He begins by talking about the speech of God. And let's always remember that when God's word says something, it is the speech of God. This book is not merely the collection of human opinion about God. 
It is the speech of God. God hath spoken once. Twice have I heard this. And what he's going to do is give us two reasons for resting in God. This is the clinching reasons. Here's what you need. He's been saying all along, he's a refuge, he's a security, he's your hope, he's your salvation, he's your high tower. All along he's been using, okay, what is it about God that makes him like that? Two things. There's just two things we need to know. First, power belongeth unto God. That's just what we need him to say to us. Everything seems so big and so powerful and so seemingly insurmountable and unconquerable. What do you need God to say about himself? You need him to say, I'm powerful. All power is mine. To me belongs the power. And this is the word that God uses all through the Old Testament to describe the wonders that he accomplished in the Exodus. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength, Psalm 74 says. By his power he brought the south wind and rained flesh upon them as dust. And that strength that he exhibited in the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt is not in one way diminished at the present hour. The Savior says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Paul told us that by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. So what is it that threatens your security? Is it something visible? Christ made it and he sustains it and he wields absolute power over it. Is it something invisible? Well, he is over that too. And that too is under his mighty sovereign power. He is King Jesus. Whether they be thrones, which are powerful, or dominions, which are powerful, or principalities, which are powerful, or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. In fact, the very power that the enemies of the children of God are using to oppress the children of God is power loaned to them by the sovereign creator. That is what we need to hear from God. When everything seems so overwhelming, and when my circumstances and my enemies so seem so irresistible, God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, Power belongeth unto God. And then there's just one more thing we need to know. It's absolutely perfect. What's the perfect companion? After being told all power belongs to God, what's the one other thing we need to know that makes him a certain refuge? Also, verse 12, also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. And this is, meets us right at our point of need. Because we don't usually doubt God's ability. We don't doubt his power. What we doubt is whether he'll do it for us. What we doubt is his willingness 
We don't doubt his power. We doubt his willingness. And so, under inspiration, David writes, Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. That word mercy is that word for loving kindness, loyalty, faithful love. And so what he's communicating to us is that God is not only able to be my sure refuge in this crisis, he also is willing to be my refuge and to receive the likes of me because of his oath and his covenant and the blood of his son. I can have this rock, this solid rock to stand on. Everything else is quicksand. Everything else is sinking sand. Other people, my own ability to sin and get away with it, human resources and wealth, it's all sinking sand. It's not powerful, and it certainly has no covenant relationship with me by blood. But this God is my refuge. He's my God. He's powerful, and he's for me. By covenant, he's faithful. He's both able and willing. And so the two clinching reasons at the end of this psalm, God's power and God's mercy. So in light of those attributes of God, I can rest in him to make this situation right. He will render to every man according to his work. And that's the ideal resting in God. Leaving it in the Lord's hands. He told us about a threat that he was experiencing in verses 3 and 4. There's a threat. Other people imagining mischief on him. But he's counseled himself back from the panic. And he can rest and be still in God and leave it in the Lord's hands. You render to every man according to his work because he's counseled himself by telling himself how to think and feel, reasoning him with himself from the attributes of God, pouring out his heart before the Lord, cutting off all other escapes to God's competitors and zeroing in on this, that God is able and he is willing. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. So this is the way that David counsels us to, speaking, to resting in God alone. This is the calling of the people of God. Trust in him at all times. He's a refuge to us. Don't look at competitors. They're lighter than breath. For God hath spoken once. Twice have I heard it. That power belongeth unto God. Also to thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. For thou renderest to every man according to his work. Well, let's pray.
Lord, our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we long to live a life of consistent trust and confidence in Thee. And we confess unto Thee that it is not so, that we too often look to other misplaced confidences. There are too many idols in our lives. Help us, O Lord, to rid those idols from thy throne and to worship and to be confident in thee alone. O Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to trust you as our refuge, to be confident in you, and to pour out our heart before you in every change and alteration of life. We thank thee that in this psalm, thou hast taught us to say, it is well with our souls. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.